out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Joe Boxers, the British New Wave band that were formed in 1982, had massive hits, including Boxer Beat, that got to number one or two in the charts, followed by that classic chart-topping track, Just Got Lucky, which broke the band internationally and sold over a quarter of a million records. Anyway, at the weekend, I spoke to their lead singer, Dick Wayne, sometimes known, well, he's known as Timothy Wayne Bull. Um, he was in California. I was in Norwich. We got on fabulously well. So anyway, this is it. This is the interview. So after much interest and chat, well, just a little bit, as you do in the world of show business, we got down to the very nitty gritty. Yes, we're going to talk about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, to start it off, let's talk about your early formative years. Dick, Timothy, it's over to you. Well, there was several different ones, actually. You know, I, I was born uh, probably about 10 years before you. So, you know, I had a lot of different influences. You know, I the earliest thing I remember is uh, that made an impression on me was, um, I remember seeing Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. right. When I was a little kid, I saw Elvis Presley and that was really, that made a real impression on me. I never forgot that. I remember my, I saw him, I think he was on the Ed Sullivan show, then he was on the, on the Milton Berle show. And there was one of those shows where they wouldn't show him from the waist down. <laughs> you know, it was a really famous, it was a famous, you know, episode where they, you know, his, his, his movements were, his gyrations were just too, too salacious for, tele, for network television in those yes, days. this is true. Um, but that, yeah, that made a big impression on me. Um, and then, of course, seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, that made a big impression on me as well. I'll never forget that. And then, of course, Motown. You know, Motown was the thing that was really, uh, well, it was a black thing. So it was something I could relate to more. I saw myself in those people in Motown. I didn't mm-hmm. see myself on Elvis Presley. You know, I didn't see myself in the Beatles, but Motown was a real, uh, you know, and just early rock and roll. I mean, you know, Little Richard, you know, all early 90s, early 50s rock and roll was something, even though I was I was too little to go and buy records when those guys were making records. As soon as I was old enough to, I think Elvis was the one that turned me on to rock and roll. I thought of rock and roll. My mother, funny funny enough, my mother had a Gene Vincent. She had Bebop Alula. Right. She had the single Bebop Alula when my, my sister and I were kids. And, uh, we used to listen to that and just crack up because that one bit when he'd go, she's the one that gives me <laughs> more, more, more. And we used to thought that was so funny, the way he would breathe like that. We never heard anyone breathe on a record like that, you know? <laughs> so that was important. And it's so funny because that Bebop Alula, years later, that was the real impetus that connected me to rockabilly. Right. You know, when I got into rockabilly in, in you know, in the in the seventies, in the late seventies, that's 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 when I thought, you know, because rockabilly would seem to be such a white dri- you know, white guy driven sort of music. And I thought, well, wait a minute, it's all from rock and roll and rock and I have a claim to rock and roll. So, you know, so it, it kind of legitimized me doing uh, rockabilly, you know. I thought, you know, in that Gene Vincent record and just uh, you know, once I started exploring rockabilly, I started finding out that 
you know, all the rockabilly people loved black rhythm and blues. So I wasn't that far off the mark. You know, I just was like the only black guy doing rockabilly at the time. So (laughs) it's interesting. I was going to say, it's always interesting because David Bowie, thankfully, was my first love and my first single. And and also I loved Lemmy from Motorhead. And whenever they spoke, they were born just after the Second World War. And they, and they would always say their, their main influence was, you know, Little Richard. It was seeing Little Richard that, that yeah. sort of changed everything. And I guess it yeah. would have been just for a young child, just going, wow, that's yeah. something else. You know? Yeah, those guys are a little bit older than me. So they, you know, and they were, uh, they were born in the late 40s. Yes. You know, so that made them, you know, they were, they came of age a little bit sooner. So yeah, I mean, David, I remember David Bowie, he made a big impression on me too, because there was a time in my life when I was very much into Lou Reed. Right. You know, before I discovered rockabilly and thought I was really going to be a, you know, I wanted to be a real rock and roll star. I was still in, I was still in Ohio and I was, I just was crazy about Lou Reed and, uh, you know, there was something about it. It wasn't glam, but it, but I was still very aware of like glam bands, you know, I remember Slade and uh, that's about as far as I went Slade. Probably. I never listened to sweet and some of those groups, you know, those real glam bands. And and so David Bowie, I remember that spiders and Mars Ziggy Stardust album was like, Whoa, me and my friends were like, this dude is from outer space. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, but I was a little older. So I, it, it didn't kind of consume me. Yeah. You know, well, did, did the kind of, because you mentioned in the 60s, kind of Motown and probably James Bryan as well was a huge influence. Oh, yeah. And uh, all those those kind of, a lot of the, I suppose a lot of people like Jackie Wilson, who probably wasn't kind of Motown, but he was, you know, one of my favourite soul singers from that period. Did you also kind of pick up on that kind of, that psychedelic world that was happening in around 67 with the, you know, like Jimi Hendrix and the Doors and the, the West Coast, you know, thing with Jefferson Airplane and possibly the Grateful Dead. Did that did that kind of interest you at all? Were you not, not really? I was interested in Jimi Hendrix, of course. I wasn't interested in the Grateful Dead at all. I, 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 you know, not at all. That was to me was like just hippie shit. I didn't have anything to do with the Grateful Dead. It's like to this day, I'm like, I hear a Grateful Dead record, I'm like, please, no, I, I, I can't get to that at all. No. But yeah, Jimi Hendrix in love. Oh, you know, yes, Arthur yes. Lee and Love, that was cool because, you know, here was a black guy in a kind of a white band, you know, singing kind of rock and roll psychedelic, you know, not wearing soul clothes, not a soul singer. So I, I, I gravitated towards that. I thought that was a real, you know, he was something that I, a guy that I really looked to. And of course, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, I remember seeing the first Jimi, that first Jimi Hendrix record and my friend and I were in like a, a five and dime, like a JC Penney's or a, S.S. Kresge, a little, you know, five and dime store in my hometown, Cambridge, Ohio. And we were, I think we were in junior high, probably in the seventh grade or something. And we were looking, there was a, one little record, this little record area where they sold albums in 45s, you know, yes. and the 45s were like a dollar. And I think the albums were two ninety nine or something. And we would always go and look through these records. And we, the first day we saw that Are You Experienced album, we were like just completely blown away. It was like, oh man. We thought he was a crazy Mexican guy. But he must be some Mexican dude, you know, and he had that picture with the eyeballs on his shirt and that kind of frog eye lens, you know. Mm. It was just, we took it home. We took it to my friend's house and put that record on and that was it. It changed our lives. It really did. It changed our lives. Well, I Never remember heard I anything that, like that. I don't know if it was so easy to see. It wasn't when I was growing up, even in the 80s, but things like the Monterey Pop Festival and also Woodstock, you know, you had Jimi Hendrix there and you also had... You 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 know you also saw um, those kind of sly sly in the family stone that was the one wasn't it 
yeah it sort of Woodstock was kind of like oh that's interesting that's that's kind of like something else isn't it so yeah uh, I mean even Richie Havens you know a folk singer black folk singer you know he was he was very cool you know in, in a whole different way it wasn't like I he didn't set a, 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 a he wasn't a model for me but I I, I noticed him you know being yeah. black you know I noticed the guys who were doing it who weren't doing soul music per se you know, even later on, Bill Withers was like an interesting black singer, you know, because he was, you know, just in jeans and a little t and a T-shirt and, and a denim jacket and an acoustic guitar. It's like, what is this guy? But he's like one of the greatest songwriters, you know, in the world. Yes, know? absolutely. And then obviously, because you mentioned, you know, I suppose that transform, I guess you're thinking of the Lou Reed Transformer album that David Bowie produced, the one with yeah. all the hits on, because that was quite an album did that sort of lead you into other territory in in that sort of world that was slightly i suppose because i'm just thinking new york and that became part of that punk scene with the new york dolls and iggy pop you know and cbgb's did that sort of lead you that direction at all or not well it wasn't so much that transformer album that really got me into lou reed i i, I wasn't really into the velvet underground particularly, you know, I, was, I, I got into Lou Reed more like Sally Can't Dance, right? Um, you know, around the time when he had his hair blonde and the sunglasses and he was like hitting up on stage and he would tie, I saw that tour where he came out like he was, you know, skeleton skinny in a black sleeveless t-shirt and he, he did the song Heroin and he tied himself off and like, you know, pant, you know, mind, you know, jacking himself <laughs> up on stage. <laughs> it was like this guy, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't the Transformer period. It was a little bit later that I got into Lou Reed. I later went back and listened to Transformer and all that stuff, you know, and it, it, didn't, it didn't do the same thing for me that the later Lou Reed stuff did. Right, because I, I know he was a massive Sam and Dave fan, wasn't he? He loved Sam and Dave. Yeah. Started getting really into, yes, dancing. Dance music was one of his things, wasn't it? In that yeah latter part of the 70s but then and he was also big into doo-wop he really loved doo-wop there's yes. some really early Lou Reed stuff where he's like you know you can see he's like listening been listening to to like Brooklyn doo-wop you know it's like it's it's really strange to think that was his influence was doo-wop music you would never hear that in you know waiting for the man <laughs> <laughs> no not at all and because then you know as the 70s progressed because I had a brother who was seven years older than me and he was really into prog rock and I was quite young and I looked up to him so I I too sort of wanted to listen to those albums but then was kind of I'm still kind of quite young at that stage so punk didn't really sort of hit me because I was only about 12 and it was like you couldn't at that stage in the 70s just go and listen to something just because you read about it or could see something about right. the Sex Pistols. It just wasn't like, oh, yes, I'll go and listen. You'd have to go and get some money, which took weeks, if not months, to save up and buy a record. Yeah. Right. Know, it, it wasn't, you know, like, oh, I'll just go and listen to the Sex Pistols album, you know, it would have been like. Yeah. So I went around going, has anybody listened to it? Has, what, what's all this, you know, God Save the Queen? That, <laughs> but no one, no one That's very funny. <laughs> well, my, to, to, pick, to finish that, what you asked me before, you know, as far as punk, getting into punk, that was, that was, that, I went from like the Lou Reed thing, that led me into punk, you know, that led me into like the New York scene. I was still in Ohio and I'll never forget, this is probably around 1976 or 77, a friend of mine uh, had been in, he had been in Chicago and he said, he said, let's go to Chicago. He lived in Chicago for a while and he came back to Ohio. He said, let's go to Chicago. I would take you to some clubs. And at that point I was really into the Sex Pistols. I was going to this one record store buying 
all the imported, you know, 45 punk imported 45s slaughtering the dogs. And, um, you know, uh, I think they were actually had the sniffing glue magazine, right. you know, all, all that early punk stuff, you know, and it was, I found it very exciting because it was like, it was so new. It's like, I'd never heard anything like this. And it seemed so raw and exciting that, you know, you didn't have to be particularly talented. You just had to have this attitude and look right. And that whole idea was, you know, it was very appealing to young people. So we went to Chicago. He took me to some clubs and they were playing rockabilly and punk music in these clubs in Chicago. And so I went back to Ohio and I thought, man, that's, that's that combination of things. And so at the time I was wearing like, I remember I had some x-ray specs and we were, you know, we were wearing safety pins. We were really taking some of that English punk thing. And, uh, and then a friend of mine went to New York and he came back with the first Ramones album. And he said, listen to this. And he, we put it on and it was like, you know, that again was like, wow, these, you know, like these two minute songs that were just like, just grabbed you by the throat, you know, and they were in and out, one, two, three, four, and they were off, you know, and that was exciting. I thought, I got to go to New York, you know, and then yes. from there, from there, uh, I mean, I was into Iggy, I was into Iggy, I was into the Stooges when I was in high school, you know, I, I saw the Stooges, you know, before he was Iggy Pop. So I went to a, a pop festival called Goose Lake and I saw Mountain 10 years after, you know, the Stooges, who else? Um, I mean, yeah, it was incredible. So, you know, so Iggy was really early on for that stuff. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I, then I, I got into Richard Hell and the Voidoids. I started getting in all these New York bands. Yes. And eventually, yeah, eventually I went to New York and, uh, you know, the New York Dolls. I remember seeing that first New York Dolls album in Ohio. And it's like, I got to go to New York City. You know, that's where it's at. Got to get out of Ohio. And funny enough, uh, you know, I was getting Rock Scene magazine and reading about all, you know, Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and all these clubs in New York, all these pictures of all these people hanging out in these clubs. I thought, man, I got to go there. And Trash and Vaudeville as well, which was the clothing store. And they sold these skinny black jeans. And that was, the, that was the thing to have. I wasn't thin enough to wear skinny black jeans, but I thought, well, that's cool, still cool. So when I finally did move to New York in 19, late, late 1978, I, uh, you know, I got a job at Trash and Vaudeville, you know, and I used to work at Trash and Vaudeville. And so was, all that the, the, was that the equivalent of like Malcolm McLaren's kind of shot with Vivian Westwood? You know, what, boy, kind of. Yeah, it was kind of like that. It was also a little bit of Johnson's. You know, right. there were another shop on the King's Road because the, the guy who ran trash, he used to come to England and, and buy stuff from Johnson's and then ship it back and sell in Trash and Vaudeville. But working at Trash and Vaudeville got me really acquainted to that New York scene because everybody would come into Trash and Vaudeville. I mean, Bruce Springsteen would come in there. John Bellucci would come in there. Alice Cooper, you know, everybody. No one was too famous to go into Trash and Vaudeville. Right. You know, being, being a kid from Ohio working in Trash and Vaudeville, you know, then I wanted to start a band. I started my rockabilly band and we got pretty well known around the city. So and we, next thing you know, go ahead. Oh, you go were ahead. into rockabilly in New York City. Yeah, because I've done a couple of interviews with with members of the Rockettes who had, yeah. sort of, you know, because they were kind of Smithy Smith and uh, Lee yeah. Dexter and and Tom Tom Tim Scott McConnell, you know. So so those guys. So you knew those guys, that whole scene. Oh, yeah, I met children. I met I met Levi and Smutty in Kentucky before any of us had moved to New York. Because uh, I, I, when I was still in Ohio, I was trying to find, I was trying to start a rockabilly band. Hang on, let me change this. I was trying to start a rockabilly band 
and I, I couldn't find any players. So I put an ad in a local, in a local uh, newspaper saying, you know, we're looking for rockabilly guitar players. And him and Smutty had just been brought over from England by Lee Childers. Yes. And they're, they're in, yeah, Lee Black Childers, they're in a, they're in a, there's a rundown old house in Coventry, Kentucky, just across the river from Ohio. And so they saw the ad and they called me up and said, hey, we're rockabilly guys from England. You know, we should meet and talk about rockabilly. So I, I had a 1960s Studebaker. I had a vintage car and I was working at a vintage clothing store. And uh, I drove to Kentucky and I met Levi. There's a really great picture. He and I standing out in front of my Studebaker, you know, and you know, and that's how I met Levi. And I didn't see him again. We were all talking about, got to go to New York, got to go to New York. And it wasn't until probably almost a year later, maybe I was in New York. I was walking down the Bowery one day and I saw him on the Bowery. It's like, oh my God, we're here. We're here. We made it. And then his, and they were in, that was, and then his band, Levi and the Rockcats were playing on Halloween and they opened for the Cramps. <laughs> And that was the first time I saw them, and it was so exciting. They had these, they had records hanging on wires from the stage, spinning on the stage, and all these musical notes floating around. It was, it was really cool, you know. So it, yes, well, absolutely, because I, I sort of, I thought it was amazing because I've done, you know, Smutty told me the story that you know he just literally got picked up in this club in Essex in Eng England by Lee Childers and sort of taken to New York and suddenly becomes part of that world with. Robert Maplethorpe and Andy Warhol, yeah. and really, oh, they were they they were definitely New York darlings, the Rock Cats, because they're also <laughs> gorgeous. These gorgeous young men with these British these British accents, you know, and the tattoos, you know, they were they were so fabulous. They were they were just darlings. I'll never forget. Smutty told me one time when 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 he met Lee, and Lee said to him, "Oh, you guys should we should start a band. You should be in a band." He said, "What would you rather play, bass or guitar?" And Smutty said, "What's the difference?" <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a bit like you know oh come to New York though you can't play and we've got no instruments we'll work that out later I thought we'll figure that out later see and that's what was cool about Rockabilly <laughs> at that time because it had the punk mentality you know you just needed to know a few chords look it in the clothes and have the right attitude you know yeah. that's that's what it took you know and and that was that was very exciting so so because when we were playing Rockabilly in New York City at that time there were no Rockabilly kids in the audience they were punks Remember, Sid Vicious would be in the audience. Johnny Thunders would be in the audience, you know? So there were no, it wasn't a rockabilly scene particularly. It wasn't mm. until I came to England the first time with Buzz and the Flyers, and we pulled up outside the Royalty Ballroom, I'll never forget, and there was a sea of kids all dressed in 50s clothes. And we were shocked. We we're like, oh my God. And they went crazy. They went crazy to see a real American rockabilly band, you know, and real American 50s clothes, you know, it was, it was very exciting. That's when I fell in love with England. I said, I got to go to England one of these days because this is, this is, these kids know how to have a scene. In America, yes. it's like, you know, if a ba if whatever band's in town, the kid just gets a t-shirt. That's what, that was the big joke. You get, you, you know, you get a, you get a Motorhead t-shirt for the weekend, you go see Motorhead. Then the next week you get a, I don't know, T-Rex t-shirt, whoever's playing, you put on the t-shirt, you know cheap trick it doesn't matter it's not a scene <laughs> you know we're in england if those kids get into something it's like head to toe yes they live it they live it and i really appreciated that because that's what we did we lived that rockabilly lifestyle and we wore 50s clothes all the time we even wore 50s underwear if we could find them you know we just listened to 50s music 50s guitars 50 you know everything was 50s you know yeah well i did the, i did the interview with levi 
And I mean, he was talking about how strict people were and the fact that you had to run. You had to do a lot of running in those days from, you know, different groups who hated you, you know, and, and <laughs> yes, all, this, all, all this little variation that, you know, yeah. that, that traditional, you know, Ted's, there was rockabilly, there was, you know, skinheads, there was punks, you know, there was a bit of heavy metal, you know, every, every but it was very tribal. You couldn't just go, oh, I'll, I'll be something different next weekend. You know, you just weren't, you signed it. And, and these guys are still living it. That's the thing that really is amazing. Yeah, yeah. well, you see these, you know, was it Crazy Caven? You know, Crazy Caven, he just recently died, you know, and he was he was still Crazy Caven, man. He had his, he had a bit of his sideboard still, even though he lost his quiff, you know. <laughs> you know, he was he was probably 75 years old, man. He's old Ted's, you know. They've yes. been Ted's, they've been Ted's since they were 15. So you had you had CBGBs. Did, was the Mud Club going at that stage, or was that yeah. still a bit late? Oh, that was already started. Yeah, the Mud Club was happening. We played right. the Mud Club a lot. That was that was a great place to play. It was a really cool place. The Mud Club. There was something about the Mud Club that was, uh, I don't know, it was just a different vibe than than CBs or Maxes. It's a different vibe. Yes, that right. that was kind of. I mean, there was probably others as well. It was more of a party. The Mud Club was more of a party. Yes, you, know, you could I go did. upstairs and be like a party would be happening on the second floor, you know, where Max's, it was like, there was a restaurant downstairs, you went upstairs to hear the bands, and there was a bar, and that was about it, you know? Yes. It wasn't like a DJ, well, that's the thing at the Mud Club, there was like a DJ playing, then the, then a band would play, I mean, William H. Burroughs, you know, Burroughs would, would be there, you know, reciting poetry, and, you know, it was, it was a very kind of exclusive place. The, the Burroughs Bunker. That was that sounds an amazing place, and you had Victor Brock Brockus, Brockus the, he's kind of the writer. That um, he, I did an interview with Victor, and he told me about this time when he got sort of Andy Warhol, Burroughs, and Mick Jagger together. But he said he was so poor he didn't manage to have any food. And there's this picture of them all looking really. You know, he said it was a disastrous evening. <laughs> <laughs> he had to go to a garage and get some white bread from the garage and sort of gave. And he was thinking, God. And there's this photograph of them. And apparently it was really uncomfortable evening. And I was thinking, you had you know Jagger, Burroughs, and Warhol, and you didn't have any money for food. Wow. What, what did he do? Interview with them? I'm not familiar with he, this he person. Was, he was trying to, I'll have to send you a link to this. He was trying to set up some sort of little kind of evening together, but they all just didn't. And, and Jagger wasn't very pleased because he didn't know why he was there. And, and um, yeah, it, it sort of went down as a bit of a historic kind of moment in a, in a small way of just like how not to have a dinner party, you know, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. very famous people. So look, so in the, in the UK, I mean, obviously, because with the Rockettes, I mean, they never got the commercial success, but then you had the Stray Cats that kind of had massive success, didn't you? Yeah. So they were the ones that sort of really helped, and then the Cramps as well. And, then, and also in the UK, you, we had that post-punk period. So how come you went from America to, the, you know, to England? What was, what, how did you manage to jump that one? Well, it, it kind of started with the Stray Cats, actually, because the Stray Cats, I've told this story so many times, and you know, it's like the Stray Cats were, they were called the Tom Cats at the time, and, you know, they were these three young guys from Long Island that would come into the city and play. And, um, you know, they were good and they were cute and they were, you know, they were good. They were good. I mean, Brian Setzer's always been an excellent guitar player. Uh, they opened for Buzz and Flyers, you know, and, and, you know, they were, they, you know, we didn't really think much about them. You know yeah. what I mean? And um, gradually, I forget what they did. Somehow they ended up going to England. We had been to England and we knew the excitement that rockabilly had in England, you know, so 
they went to England and somehow it was a manager or that, you know, they just really had good connections and I don't know exactly how it went, but it's, it's they seemed to get their picture on the front of uh, Rolling Stone magazine with Mick Jagger or with Keith Richards or something, you know, some magazine in a me, maybe, I don't know. And, you know, they signed a record deal. And once they signed a record deal, you know, they all got their tattoos and they, <laughs> they, they cut off their bowling sleeves off their bowling shirts and they really locked their image down and they just skyrocketed, you know, they just skyrocketed. And, and you know, I was young and kind of sensitive at the time. And I, I was very, uh, I'll admit it, I was very jealous of their success because we had been working for a while. We had a great reputation, us and the Rockcats. We were like the rockabilly bands in, in, in New York City. And uh, all of a sudden, these guys, they called themselves, the, they changed their name to the Stray Cats. And, you know, all of a sudden they're like everywhere. And we were like, what? What? You know, how could this happen? You know, what about us? And, but I understood it. There were three, three guys. They were very good. You know, they were a great package. They have a really a record company's dream package, those guys, you know? And so that's what happened. And then I remember um, when their, I think Runaway Boys had come out and we were playing a gig somewhere and some guy from a record company came and saw me and he goes, oh, he, he, he said, so what do you think of the Stray Cats? And I go, eh, yeah. And he said, he quoted me one of the lyrics from Runaway Boys, you know, you know, get kicked out because of kind of the, you know, mom, dad, dad, curse the day you're born. You know, and he said this to me like, you know, pretty cool. Uh, and I just wasn't impressed. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry, man. You know, it's like, I, I just know it too well. I'm too close to that. I, I, and I didn't, I, I didn't uh, sing their praises and it got back to them. And, uh, you know, cause I was pretty close to Brian with Brian, you know, I knew Brian pretty well. And they used to come into trash and vaudeville. And, uh, you know, got back to him and it just kind of, you know, just killed the relationship. But, and ultimately, it was the beginning of the end of Rockabilly for me, because people started comparing us to the Stray Cats. You know, people would say, oh, you guys don't like the Stray Cats. Oh, you, do you like the Stray Cats? And, and I thought, if I hear another fucking person <laughs> ask me about the goddamn Stray Cats, I'm going to lose my mind, you know? And so, uh, and so then I... And buzzing the flyers, we got off the, at the time. The Clash were doing like two weeks, I forget, 10 days. They did 10 days at Bonds, at this, this club on Times Square called Bonds. It was, a, it was a really historic rock and roll event. And every night they had a different local New York band open for them. And so they asked us, you know, we got chosen. We got the tap. You want to open for the Clash one night? And it's like, yeah. So we opened for the Clash and Bernie Rhodes, Bernard, Bernard Rhodes, their manager, um, he saw us and he approached me and he said, I really like you. I don't like your band. You're not going to get anywhere playing that music. The Stray Cats already did it. He said, if you want to come to England, I will um, be your manager and uh, get your record deal, introduce you to musicians, you know, enable you to start a new band and get a fresh start if you want to come to England. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I broke up buzzing the flyers. I sold all my fifties. Actually, I sold my all my fifties clothes at Kensington Market. I brought some with me. I sold them at Kensington Market, and uh, sold all my fifties furniture. Broke up with my girlfriend, and I think I probably within two weeks of him asking me, I was ready to go. And that was how I ended up in England. And I went right from the airport to Camden Yard, and met the guys that were in Subway Sect, you know, and the Vic Goddard. Yeah, and they were doing Club Left at the time in the old Whiskey A Go-Go in Waldorf Street on Thursday nights. 
And so, and they had seen Buzz and the Flyers and we came over and we played at Dingwalls. They had seen us, so they knew who I was. And they were like, yeah, let's do this. And so we worked up a few songs. And so they had like a cabaret thing at Club Left. And I would sing a couple of songs. We had a girl named Lady Blue would sing a couple of songs. And then Vic Goddard would come on and sing, you know, in his bow tie, doing the <laughs> songs for sale. You remember all that? You yes. know, doing that whole Dickie Bow, you know, crooner thing. It was a good idea. And, uh, and we did that for a while. And eventually I was like, I don't want to be just one singer in a lineup. You know, and Vic didn't like the tour. He didn't like the tour. And I thought, man, I didn't come to England to, just to do this. I said, I want to get a deal. I want to get a hit. I want to get hit records. I want to, I want to go as far as I can go with this. I said, we should just start a band, start from scratch, get rid of the bow ties, get rid of all this dicky bow stuff, you know, and just find a new image. And, uh, and the guys agreed. And they said, yeah, you know, we want to do that too. We're not happy with not touring and, you know, Vic being difficult. And so, uh, difficult in that way yeah yeah um, so uh that's what we did and we just buckled down and you know bernie bernie just kind of you know picked up the tab and we just stayed in camden yard every day i was like going to a job every day i was living in tooting beck at the time and every day i'd take the train to camden yard camden yard and we'd stay there all day writing songs and rehearsing and talking about what kind of band we wanted to be and what we wanted to look like and we were working on looks and images and they introduced me to dexies Right. You know, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I like that. And I was really into Marlon Brando and on the waterfront and all that stuff. I thought that was a good way to go. And so between Dexies and me bringing the American part of Brando and on the waterfront, you know, then we kind of developed the, the Joe Boxers look, you know, and, and the whole and plus the, and the music was kind of just natural. You know, it was soul. It was it was rock. It was you know, soul and rock and roll and uh, bluesy and swinging. Mainly yes. it was swinging. Everything was like swinging, you know, and that was, that combination just really worked, you know. And so, yes, it was quite, it was a very definite image, wasn't it? You, you sort of, because it was kind of interesting because actually is that, that, I mean, in the UK, you know, Thatcher had just got into power in 79. There had been the Falkland War. There had been sort yeah. of a lot of unemployment with the young people. So that there was a quite, a, you know, there was quite a, sort of separation between the people who were sort of going to be probably more mainstream chart success and the more indie world as well so there was a sort of a divide wasn't there because you had those those kind of clubs where you know people like boy george and marilyn and spandau Ballet all hung out and and london also had a bit of a jazz scene didn't it as well with people yeah. like Ronnie Char scott yes yeah. Yeah. Bands, and then yeah. there was working week and people like that and loose ends so there was there was kind of london did seem very cosmopolitan to people like me who wasn't weren't in london really at the time because you also had that magazine didn't you the face that came out and yeah. there was definitely this kind of look that people started to go through well there was that hard time image that hard time issue hard yeah. times and it had like jeans with ripped up jeans and you know everybody looked like they were you know had been drug drugged behind a pickup truck or something you know everyone was all beat up looking and that became like a real thing to to latch on to I always remember at the cinema, there used to be an advert for Southern Comfort, and that used to slightly have that nostalgia thing, wasn't it? That sort of, you know, America from the 50s that we all vaguely knew because of films that we'd seen, but, you know, obviously hadn't lived in America in the 50s as well. But kind of yeah. going, going back to things like The Last Picture Show, wasn't there? With uh, Was that Jeff Bridges? 
yeah and, and and all that kind of and there was a film called the warriors as well there was a lot yeah. of kind of nostalgia and james i remember james dean being a big thing in the 80s as well you know looking i don't know not you know east of eden giant and the um rebel, rebel without Force. a cause yeah. yeah they those as well as brando who was like jesus look at that guy with his face. I know. <laughs> I know all that stuff all that stuff really really kind of uh got dug up and became uh, a, a real hook for a lot of people a lot of people started look I mean even there's so many uh, a lot of guys around that time for instance you know someone like um Spear of Destiny Kirk, Kirk, Kirk Brandon the Kirk Brandon was that his name yeah you know he had that look you know he had like that 50s haircut and he looked very 50s you know even though he wasn't knowing anything 50s but he had that look even Morrissey at that you know had like a 50s look you know all those guys yes absolutely oh. he he loved his quiff didn't he so did, yeah. you know so it, so the band got this sort of look but they also got you got the sand together very quickly didn't you things sort of yeah. lined up that that sort of honeymoon period because having done this show for a long time I mean, there's, there, there's, most bands have this five-year narrative don't they they have the sort of 18 months kind of getting it together for 12 months and with a lot of indie bands I've done, you know, it would be John Peel giving it a play. Then you get a John yeah. Peel session. The first album, things going good. And also there was a lot of clubs around the UK. So you could always get gigs up and down the country quite easily because there's always a, a venue which, you know, on a Monday, Wednesday night, you know, people could just get 200 people quite happily going along just because it was, you know, cheap as chips as well, wasn't it? There was a yeah. big live circuit. So what, what was your, because you weren't quite in that indie world were you you didn't sort of no no we, we we weren't in the indie world at all we were we were going we were going for commercialism you know we wanted hit records you know we weren't interested in a cult thing you know some little small group of things you know so we we really and we built a following for, by playing live in those places that you're mentioning you know all those little you know all up around the country all up and down the country in london you know we were playing gigs all the time and that's how that's how we really built a following just from live playing live. By the time we got a record deal, we already had a big following just from gigs. You know, we had a notorious reputation for live shows. I mean, we would just, oh, you know, we were, you know, if I could say so myself, we were really fucking good live, you know? And so it was like, and at the time also, it was also around the time when a lot of bands in the charts weren't, they, that was around the time people were known for not really playing live. They made records, but they didn't really play live. Yes. <laughs> you know, that was kind of a thing that was going on. So to be able to really play live was was a real plus because some bands couldn't do it. I mean, I don't think you could go see Kajagoogoo regularly someplace, you know, and they really brought the house down. You know? No, they they, they <laughs> didn't they didn't come to Norwich Arts Centre or the uh, <laughs> or sort of the Harlow in Essex or, or sort of you know the Princess Charlotte in Leicester, did they? They didn't. They weren't sort of a touring band. Probably not. <laughs> no, even Depeche Mode in those days were probably not particularly known for live gigs. Yeah, you know, because they were so electronic. You know, I mean, you know, so you know, there were groups like Big Country. I remember doing some, you know, doing Top of the Pops with Big Country. I wasn't crazy about Big Country, but I liked the way they, I liked their energy on stage. They really could play. You know, they had a good show. I remember we, we, we were someplace and we did, we played in the same town one night. And then we stayed at the same hotel. And I remember seeing, you know, Stuart, you know, at breakfast in the hotel, you know, asking how the gig went, you know. And, you know, so it was kind yes. of tragic. It was kind of tragic what happened to him. But 
you know, it's a long time ago, man. You just never know what's what 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 your fate is going to be. But you know, so yeah, playing live was a real plus. Even even Culture Club, you know, those kind of groups, they weren't really known for live shows, you know. And, well, I think and they, they, I think, I think they sort of just went big so quickly. They almost became well. The music was obviously important, but it wasn't. It wasn't like one of these bands that spent years playing, you know, playing live, grinding, yeah. going, going up and down the motorway in a transit van. No. And you know, un- <laughs> their kit at sort of four in the morning, sort of having to sort of get up the next day. Right. Switching drivers, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> your turn to drive. Oh, you sure, know, I'm tired. And, and, and you, you get that feeling. I mean, the Beatles, you know, spent years, didn't they? Sort of, you know, the manager thought, well, this is quite a good band, but I think you need working on. So they sent them to Hamburg, you know, roughly. Yeah. And, and they it, played the Cabin Club, you know. Yeah, and it showed because I remember even even you know when I became old enough to really appreciate the Beatles' uh, musicality, you know, their musicianship. And I remember you watch you watch old clips of the Beatles; they never look at their hands playing guitar. You know, they rarely they, they, they you know they're playing those guitars without a second thought. Just from all that live touring and just live playing, you know, just I remember they were I saw a clip of them play. There's all the clips come up online now, you know, these really weird shows, the Beatles playing someplace live, you know, and yes. they're like, wow, look at that. And they're playing. I saw her standing there and Paul McCartney singing and the bass line in that song. It's so busy, like, you know, and he's just singing away and playing that bass line. I'm like, God, these guys were so good. They were so talented, man. Yes, I, 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 be, I believe singing and playing bass is quite a difficult art. So, um, well, Paul, Paul was, and you know, I mean, like people like David Bowie. I mean, he spent the whole '60s kind of going nowhere fast, and then sort of managed to get it together with Hunky Dory and then Ziggy Stardust. But he'd spent a good five years in various bands, touring up and down the country, honing his craft. You know, learning yeah. how to or learning how to do it. You know, and that that'll take you right through. It really will. You know. But then, but then you sort of you is it because you had the big single? Is that a blessing? In you know, is that sometimes not the best thing that happens to a band? Even at the time, you think, God, this is brilliant. We've got the hit single because because it was the worst what, thing that could have happened to us. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was the first one. You mean Boxer Beat? Yes. Yeah, and Boxer then, Beat. It was the it was like number three in the charts. You know, no, I think David Bowie was number one. Duran Duran was number three, and and there we were. We're like, who who are we? Well, what what are we doing? Number three in the charts. You know, it just seems so crazy. But you know, I'll never forget going in a little smoke shop in my neighborhood. I lived in uh, Kinsel Rise at the time, and I used to go in this little smoke shop and get my you know Sun newspaper and my pack of uh, Silk Cut or whatever I was smoking at the time, and. And it was run by, you know, an Indian family and the woman was in there in her traditional English clothes. And I, I used to go in all the time. And one morning I went in and she had the radio on and, and Boxer Beat came on the radio. And I said, oh, my God, you know, I saw her, I said, that's my song. That's my song. She goes, very good, very good, very good. You know, she was so <laughs> kind of excited for me, even though she, you know, OK. <laughs> but, yeah, and it was kind of like, you know, we went the wrong way, you know, because that was number three. Then Just Got Lucky is number seven. And so we just went the wrong direction in the charts. So, you know, it's like having your first song be number one, whereas there's nowhere to go but down. You're not going to keep getting number ones one after another, you know, unless you're the Beatles or something. You know, that doesn't happen. So it was kind of the kiss of death for us. It really was. Yeah. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you sort of, you know, I suppose there's there's a lot of bands who have, not a lot, but there are bands who just went, wow, you just kind of hear them. There's that song that you just think, God, that's kind of, 
pop perfection whether you like it or not you realize that song is so good you can see why it's kind of just going to go straight to the top so then yeah. what as a band how do you then sort of cope with with trying to follow up with the album and then kind of oh you know we had a lot of material so we the album wasn't a wasn't a problem you know we had all the material we had a set we had two sets worth of material so you know we just went in and recorded the songs that we had been playing you know and the record company came to some rehearsals and they chose they said oh this one this one should be a single this one should be a single and we just you know okay but uh, you know the album was the album was not a, a flop you know i think it was number got to number 18 or something so you know, it wasn't a flop but you know it was after all that it was it, it took a while before I think after Johnny Friendly, we did, I think we did one episode, we did one Top of the Pops with Johnny Friendly and Johnny Friendly, Johnny Friendly was my favorite. I, I really wanted that song to be a hit. I thought we should have come out with Johnny Friendly first. You know, that should have been the first song because it was, I thought it was just a great song and told a story. It was all about on the waterfront. You know, it had a real, had a real story and a real atmosphere, that song. But, um, you know, record company didn't think it was, you know, a hit. So, um you know, after that came out, it didn't go anywhere, uh, you know, just things got progressively worse. And then we were bad with business, of course, you know, we had a manager who was like a friend and uh, Bernie Rhodes was gone by then, you know, and uh, we had a manager who was a friend and his heart was in the right place, but he had no idea how to deal with record companies and, you know, business. And we were all pretty wild and misbehaved a lot. <laughs> you know, we were playing, you know, little ruffian pop stars, you know, running around terrorizing the record company and getting drunk and, you know, just doing all, all the stuff that you do, you know, yes, what you do, having a really good time, enjoying the success. And, you know, eventually it catches up with you. And I forget all the gory details, but um, RCA wanted, I forget what they wanted from us. And they, all the suits came to see us in one get one gig at the Hammersmith Palais or something and the suits came and, and I was always, you know, resentful of authority, you know, and the kind of the James Dean, Marlon Brando thing in me where someone comes in the room with authority and I'm, I'm the guy that's going to say, fuck you eventually, or do something <laughs> that's going to piss them off. And, and I did, and I pissed them off and they put an injunction on us and we didn't, we couldn't sign a deal or record anything for 18 months. And in those 18 months, we just kind of disappeared, you know, and we came back with a single called, is this really the first time uh, single that was just awful? I, I can't even listen to that song now. You know, it just, it just sounds like a really bad attempt to recapture the success of Just Got Lucky. It's one of those kind of songs. It's that kind of a song with the hook and the verse and, you know, and all that kind of like, ho-hum, here we go again stuff, you know? And so... Uh, eventually it was just like, I remember telling the guys, I said, my heart's not in this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Then we had some offers for, you know, small little indie labels came to us and were trying to offer us things. And I wasn't interested. My heart wasn't in it. And once my heart wasn't in it, I thought, eh, I don't want to do it. And so I just walked away. I don't want to do this. And I had like a solo deal for a while that went nowhere. And, you know, I was kind of lost. Those lost years, you know, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like I had a summer of heroin, you know, <laughs> all those, all those, all those moments, you know, after, you know, post success, you know, and you just kind of try to find your footing. You don't know what to do. And um, that's when I discovered acting, you know, thought, well, let's see what this Marlon Brando stuff is all about. 
Yes, well, well I, me- I remember in the the eighties we were very excited with that term method acting because we'd also seen a lot of Robert De Niro, didn't we, with Mean Streets and yeah. Taxi Driver, and so you know this, you know this, and then the French cinema with Betty Blue and Diva and and all those kind of angsty. So you know, I, the cinema was a big thing in the eighties. I seem to remember again those kind yeah. of you know the Scorsese films and you know, French cinema and anything else that you could feel kind of arty with, which I did enjoy, yeah. but, you know, method acting was, you know, Brando and not having a clue what people were talking about, but going, yeah, it's method acting, you get into the character, marvellous. <laughs> yeah, well, so funny, because I just, I just had a, I just had a, uh, a Zoom meeting a few minutes ago, uh, it was David Strasberg's 50th birthday, you know, Lee Strasberg, kind of the father of method acting. Oh, you know, yes. I, I work, I, it's so weird because I studied, I, I eventually, you know, went to the Strasbourg Institute in London. Uh, I, I enrolled for a semester. I thought, what's this acting all about? So I enrolled for a semester and I had a friend who went to Central Drama School. And uh, I said to him, he was a roadie for Joe Boxers, you know, and he, he was an actor. He'd gone to drama. And I said, so what do they teach you at drama school? He said, they taught me how to stand still. And I was like, you know, you taking a piss away. What do you mean by that? And he goes, no, he taught me how to stand still. And I know he was kind of goofing, but at the end of the day, when I actually started studying acting, I learned that, yeah, you got to learn how to stand still. <laughs> that was part of it. You got to learn how to, you got to really know how to stand still. You can't be all over the place and making all these expressions. And so I got a scholarship. I, I did a scene for Honest Strasberg, Lee Strasberg's wife, his wife. And I got a scholarship and I started studying there and I fell in love with the craft. I really fell in love with it. I thought that this is everything I had been doing kind of led me to that. Yeah, it really did. And I thought, this is what I need to be doing right now. This is exactly what I should be doing. Forget pop music. I was a pop star. I did that. I'm not interested in trying to regain that, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't consider myself some kind of fabulous singer enough to think, Oh, I want to be a great singer. I'm I'm going to make these fabulous records and show everybody what a wonderful singer I am. You know, I I could sing and I think I have a good voice, but that wasn't my fire. That wasn't what my desire was particularly. So uh, that's why the solo deal didn't really work. So um, so I I continued studying. And the wonderful thing about studying that craft and falling in love with the craft of acting for me was I because I'd always wanted to get rich and famous. You know, and then. Once what I learned and at the Strasbourg Institute was I learned that I was an artist. You know, I discovered that I was an artist and I thought I had a wonderful teacher. And he said, you know, you're an artist. You got to embrace the art in yourself, you know, and forget about fame and forget about, you know, people knowing who you are. Just get good at your craft, you know, fall in love with this craft and get good at it. And then things will fall into place. Things will happen. You know, just focus on that. It's about that. It's about the work. Yeah, and that's what I did, and that's what I did, and you know, eventually they kicked me out. They were, you know, said you we want you know you got to pay if you want to continue to study. And so were you uh, in London at this stage. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was still in London. I you know that was probably it was by then it was, I mean, our big success year was eighty three. Yes. And so I was kind of in the wilderness until eighty. I think I started one of the Strasbourg studio in eighty seven, something like that, and. uh and I studied there for, I don't know, about three years or so regularly. And uh, like I say, they kicked me out and they said, you can c- continue to go, but you have to pay. And I said, they told me that you should go out and try to work as an actor, get a, go get an agent, uh, try to get a manager, you know, go to auditions and try to work as an actor. And so that's what I did. And uh, 
eventually I, you know, I was fortunate and I started working as an actor. I was, I was lucky because there were only a handful of black American guys, you know, around my age in London at the time, you know, so we all had the same agent. <laughs> so if, if, a, if, a, if an audition or for a part came up and they were, it was right for, for one of us, you know, either I got it or he got it or he got it or he got it. You know, it wasn't like this huge pool of actors that you had to like struggle and, you know, it was cutthroat. It was like, you know, and that was great because it enabled me to work. So I did, you know, I did TV shows. I did, I did one, one thing I did that was really lucrative and a lot of fun was voiceovers. I did a lot of voiceover work. You know, Eddie Murphy movies would come over to the UK and I would do the radio ads. Right. You know, you know the distinguished cool. gentleman, you know, I do these going and I would just go in and, you know, I'd spend the, you know, I remember I went, <laughs> I did one for a brawn a hair dryer or something. And all I said was new bronze style and go. That's all I said, new bronze style. I went in and said it about three or four times, you know, and I made like 5,000 pounds, you know, <laughs> all this money just for that, you know, so it was, oh, it was great. That is so amazing. I know, I know. So it was, it was really good. And, but, you know, then I got in, I got into the West End, you know, and I got into five guys named Mo in the West End. I mean, that was, that was when I was really tested you know, because I didn't like musicals. My manager said, oh, there's this musical they're auditioning for. And I go, ah, I hate musicals. Huh? It's like singing in the rain. Who am I going to do? You know, the uh, Labner, what is this? You know, uh, so, but I, I went along and after some struggling, I, you know, I got the part because all I had to do was sing and act. I didn't have to dance. All the other five guys did the dancing. So it was a perfect part for me. And that must, and so, have been, that must have really pushed you physically, because actually that's a bit of a different gig, doing sometimes two shows a day. Well, you do eight shows a week, you know, eight uh, shows a week. You had two on Saturday. You yeah. got a matinee and you got an evening show. Well, what it did, what it really did was, was uh, it really helped me clean up my act, you know, because I learned early on in New York that I couldn't get high or drunk and go on stage. I had to be sober. Excuse me. And I have some friends who didn't have that um, Achilles heel, as it were. You know, they yes. could perform, they could go on stage in any state. And, and it led a lot of them to hit a wall because, you know, they do a tour, they do a show, and I don't even remember what they did. And some of them got damaged, they got hurt, they got, you know, all kind of crazy stuff happened. So that really saved me. So doing Five Guys was, you know, because uh, I, I used to take a lot of cocaine and I thought, you know, I can't I can't keep doing this and do eight shows a week. I have to keep myself in good physical shape. So I was making a lot of money. So I got a personal I got a personal trainer. You know, he'd come to my house, knock on the door. You know, I had a little gym set up. And he'd work me out like crazy, you know, and I'd go do those shows. And Saturday night, that was the thing after the after the eighth show on Saturday night, I went a little crazy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> went a little crazy. On that last show, but I felt like I earned it. You know, it was good. I'd go to the Groucho Club and, you know, Fred's. There are all these really great clubs in the West End, you know, and if you were in a big show in the West End, you kind of had carte blanche to all the clubs, you know, all the exclusive clubs. You know, you got like a just the instant membership if you were in a big hit show. So, and that was cool, but I'd always kind of clean myself up come Sunday afternoon and then Monday morning the trainer would come and <laughs> bam, right, right back on that, right back yeah, on man. it. You just have it was to wonderful. Be- you just have to do a few squats and uh, lunges and uh, and press ups, and you're thinking, Jesus, you you can't mess around the night before, can you? Because that no. that, burn, that burns your muscles. I know. I'm kind of I'm I'm obsessed with Les Mills. Those kind of classes. I do the body pump and body balance, and it's interesting that you just think, wow, oh, 
you know, because it always hurts, doesn't it? It never, it's never easy. You never think it's never easy, but you feel much better when you're done, right? You feel like you're glad you did it. You know, it feels great when you do it. So then, so this was throughout the nineties. Did you then, is this the rest of your career? Did you go into other, did, did music come back into your life? Um, not until, uh, I, well, I, one second, close the door. I, um, I moved to LA in 95, five guys closed. I moved to LA in 95. And from there, I, um, you know, just set out to become a working actor in Los Angeles. Uh, music didn't come back into it until probably I got a call and someone was interested in me doing a Buzz and the Flyers set in Green Bay, Wisconsin at some rockin' festival up there. You know, they had this rock and roll festival. And, and enough time had passed that I was like, yeah, I think I'd like to do that. And so, you know, the guy organized the band, a backing band for me. And, you know, they, they had worked out all the songs. They knew the songs. And so I went to Green Bay, Wisconsin, probably, was it 2005, I think? Something like that, 2005. Um, and did a show. And it was kind of cool. You know, I enjoyed myself. And I think I did it another, I did another one too, another Green Bay for me a couple of years later. And then I just kind of put it down. I just wasn't interested anymore. I was really focusing on my acting and my family. You know, I had married, and I, you know, I got an 18 year old daughter and a 14 year old son, you know. So I, I uh, you know, I, I just was focusing on my acting and it was very difficult, you know, as you can imagine, it's very difficult to make a living as an actor in Los Angeles. Um, I never did. I never did. I did in England, but once I moved here, it was like I always had to do something else. So I became a, you know, I was always in the clothes and style. So I, I became a, a wardrobe stylist on commercials. Right. I had a friend. I had a friend who was, you know, she was a stylist on a commercial. And so she hired me and said, you know, I need you to help me, you know, style people. So, so it was great. I loved that job. You know, you'd go out and go to the costume house, universal costume house and, you know, all these huge rooms full of clothes and, you know, you would see the cast and you'd go out and choose clothes for the people in the cast and parade them in front of the director and, you know, maintain them. And, you know, it was, it was a great job. It was really kind of paid very well. So that enabled me to kind of survive, you know, until uh, then I got some good acting gigs along the way, you know, yes. along the way. But uh, yeah, music was, and, and I didn't do music again until, what year was that? 2015. 2015. I did. I, I did a Viva Las Vegas show, a big rockabilly festival in Las Vegas called Viva Las Vegas, and you know it's huge. And they, yes. uh, and I went and played a Buzz and the Flyers set there, and I got my and my original drummer from Buzz and the Flyers, you know, Rock Rolls, kid from Brooklyn, and uh, everybody. And the other two guys were, were were different guys. Well, actually, the guitar player had been in the Rockettes. Barry Barry Ryan, he had been in the Rockettes. And the bass player was another guy named Joey Cupcakes. He's calling. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of fun. But then, you know, and that's it. You know, I got my guitar over there. I strum it every once in a while. You know, I, I still, I still only know the chords I knew <laughs> all those years ago. I never learned any other chords. So if I pick it up, I just can't play anything but rockabilly songs. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's good. So, so where does that? So on the acting front, that that was kind of you know, what you just mentioned, was there anything else that sort of came up during that period, you know, or was it just kind of the odd show, the odd bit of TV? Um, well, you know, being a, being a songwriter, I was always, you know, a poet without really thinking about being a poet per se. And so I, uh, I, um, 
well, there's a couple of things that, that happened around that time. I, I was studying acting. I was still in acting classes. And I discovered that I really enjoyed teaching acting. I was taking classes with this one particular teacher and he was a good acting teacher, but he wasn't doing the kind of work that I learned, you know, as I was training. And uh, I told him, I said, I can teach the relaxation and, and sensory work, you know, real um, foundational method acting techniques. So I started teaching that in his class and I really enjoyed it. And one thing led to another. Um, I became a member of the Actors Studio, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's quite a prestigious organization. It's been going on since the 40s with, you know, Kazan and Brando, all those people are members of the, of the Actors Studio. I became a member of the Actors Studio, and then I met a woman there who was teaching at the Strasbourg Institute here in Los Angeles. And so I said, what do you got to do to get a job teaching over there? She goes, well, come over. I'll introduce you to David, because I never met David Strasbourg. I met his mother in London, but not David. Mm. He was a kid then. I mean, he was, he just turned 50, you know? So, uh, so I, uh, I went and I met him and he hired me. So I was, I was like subbing from, that's like 2008. So I was subbing off and on there. And eventually I realized I really want to be an acting teacher. I'm not so, I, I still, I'm still an actor, but I don't audition. Yeah. So, so I thought this is my, this is everything that I've been doing now has led me to this has led me to this, to being a, a teaching this craft, teaching method acting. And that's what I do. You know, that's what I do. And I teach method acting and I'm a poet and I write poetry all the time. I've been published in a number of um, literary magazines, literary journals. And, um, you know, right now I'm writing a, I'm try, I've told myself I'm going to write some sort of a memoir poem that kind of covers my life in Ohio. Cause I've been reading a lot of Walt Whitman. Right. And uh, I write a lot of classic poets. Walt Whitman, I'm, I'm crazy about uh, <laughs> uh, Charles, or uh, what's his name, Kaufman, uh, Charles Kaufman, what's his name? I can't think of his name, my God. His name? Bob Kaufman, Bob Kaufman, Bob, right. yeah, Bob Kaufman, you know, beat poets, you know, I love beat poetry, you know, I love Kerouac, you know, I know all that Kerouac stuff, I love that stuff, you know, so I, uh, I listen to that and, and I, you know, I read that stuff all the time. I have a nice collection of poetry over here. I'm always reading something and I've been reading Whitman and Song of Myself, this one particular book. It, it's taken from Leaves of Grass, which is his classic piece. And, you know, I just, every, I can't read, I don't really read as much poetry as I'd like because <laughs> as soon as I start reading something, next thing you know, I get an idea and I'm writing, <laughs> you know, which is wonderful. Yes. Which yes, is kind of absolutely. what should happen. But sometimes I think, God, I, I can't get through this damn book. You know, I've, I've written 10 poems since I started reading it, but I can't seem to finish this book. So, <laughs> so that's, you know, right now, those are my, that's my, that's my focus, you know, my family and teaching method acting and on Zoom now because of the, you know, the plague yes. uh, and writing poetry, you know, and, and just trying, I'm, I'm trying to get my own, po I've, I've self-published one book, but I'm trying to get, I'm submitting all the time, trying to get published, trying to get a book published i don't want to self-publish i want someone to publish my book you know i've had offers people wanting to publish it but i have to pay mm. i'm like nah, that's not the same you know i want you to publish you pay you publish it and i'll just sit here and go thank you yes absolutely I mean, did you was it the case then that i read that the the you know your not the original band but your you know joe boxers was that going to have a quick a couple of dates last year and then obviously because of the the plague it got pulled or was that just yeah well right now we're scheduled to uh, which is you know i i don't personally i don't 
I won't say I don't think it's going to happen, but <clears throat> I don't have a lot of confidence. We're supposed to play the 100 Club in October, right? I forget the date. Somewhere, sometime in October, we're supposed yeah. to play the 100 Club. They've been advertising it. People have tickets. You know, there's a picture of us going around th from 35 years ago, you know, and it's like, okay, you know, uh, I it already scheduled once and got pushed because of the pandemic. Now they scheduled it again and I would love to do it, but I'm not going to get on an airplane until I feel really safe. I mean, it's not like I'm going to risk my life to go play boxer beat again at this point, you know? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think most people I spoke to, they kind of started to be quite realistic going 2022, I think, you know, most, most yeah. bands, you know, most people yeah. are just thinking, I can't, I don't want to kind of keep booking things and can't, because it kind of is draining and it's like disappointing. You can do it once last year. I think this year you're just thinking, oh, let's just, can we just do it next 2022? Maybe. Yeah, 2022. That's more realistic. You know, exactly. I mean, we got the vaccination now, you know, I, I, I've been trying to get, a, to get in to get vaccinated. You know, it's all full up and, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's like getting tickets to see, you know, I don't know. <laughs> The Grateful Dead. <laughs> it's really hard. Yes. It is, you know. I know. I, I suppose, you know. I mean, fingers crossed, but you know, you you just think, is that you know? It's like I'm not going to build. You know, I suppose you're thinking, well, great, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to be too surprised if it gets pulled, is it? Really? Exactly. Right. And I'll get myself in shape. You know, I'll start singing the songs and try to remember all the lyrics, and you know, I'll start gradually start. I, I, I'm going to set a time when I'm going to start preparing casually. You know, start yes. singing in the car, get my voice together, start trying to remember all the songs and maybe get a set list to send to the guys in the band, say, you know, I'd like to do this. And, you know, kind of act like it's going to happen as much as I can. Because the last thing I want to do is don't think it's going to happen. And then all of a sudden it, it sneaks up on me. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, shit. You know, no one's wearing a mask anymore. It's real. Ah, I'm not ready. You know, oh, well, how'd that song go again? You know, I'll start forgetting songs and forgetting lyrics. I want to do that. It's going to be tough enough, you know, doing it at, at this point, you know. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But so we know, you know, because you did, you did the first album, which went, you know, you did the other Skin and Bone and Missing Link. Did Missing Link ever come out, or did it? it was... No, no, it never came out. But the second album never came out, and we recorded a third album too. It never came out. Yeah, I mean, it was all business. All the business was bad, you know. It was bad and. Everything was you no. Know, there was nobody. There was nobody in charge. Let's put it like that. There was nobody. There was no adult in. We needed an adult in charge. Right. You know, someone to sort of come in and say, "Okay, you guys, and what is it you want to do? What is it you want to do?" And then we tell them then go, "Okay, in that case, here's what you need to stop doing, and here's what you need to start doing, and here's what you need to forget about, and here's what you need to focus on." And we never had that, so it was all kind of left to chance somehow. You know, all I wanted to do was write songs and perform. Yeah. That was where my focus was, you know. Uh, okay, how much? Okay, fine. Uh, okay, good. Let's get back to rehearsal. I just wanted to rehearse and do the songs, and, and that, that was my interest, you know. So, and, and along the way, everything just crumbled, you know. <laughs> yes, it's difficult, isn't it? You do need that Brian Epstein or that kind of person. Exactly. You need the guy in the suit to come in, you know, and say, okay, Here's what here's what needs to happen, I'll, you know. I'll I'll do the talk, and you guys just don't fuck it up. <laughs> yeah, don't fuck it up, because because and it, I mean, how many bands fuck it up? 
most bands do. I remember mm-hmm. having a conversation with uh, Paul McGinnis at Limelight one night, and I was drunk. And he was saying, how's the band? And I'm like, I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah. he goes, here's what, here's what you got to have in your band. And he was telling me, he was basically telling me that we needed a guy like him, <laughs> you know? And here's the, I mean, and you too, they were big then. This is probably 1986, 85, maybe. They were big, but they were not nearly as big as they became. Yes. You know, here's the guy that guided you too. And he's telling me what I needed. And I was just too drunk to kind of take it in, you know, I, well, it is interesting, isn't it? Because having done this show for such a long time, I've realised that you you do need that manager, but there's not many managers like that. So it's it's very unlucky, isn't it? Well, lucky for them. Because actually, when you two started, I thought, mm, they're all right, but they're nothing special. You know, I, I thought Big Country were much better. And then I loved bands like The Smiths and Huskadoo and all those. And, you know, they just didn't have management and they didn't have someone who just... A Brian Epstein who just went right. Let's let's. This is the big picture. We could be really rich and famous, and you'll never have to do anything else apart from this. You never have to grow up. Or you or you could completely cock it up, and you could be back at square one, feeling quite of like, oh no, did we just mess it up? Yeah, just mess it up, and you don't get a lot of chances. You know, I mean, ultimately, I I feel lucky that we even got a record deal. I mean, how many bands? get a record deal ultimately, you know, I mean, especially in those days, everybody wanted a record deal. So if you got a record deal and a big advance, you know, you kind of thought, you kind of thought I've arrived, you know, you didn't think this is the beginning. Yes. It was almost like, it was almost kind of like, well, this is how it's going to be from now on, you know, rather than, okay, this is the beginning. Now we got to really guide this thing and steer this thing and make sure this thing stays on track if we want to keep it going because somehow you think it's just going to carry on on its own momentum and it doesn't this is true this is very true so look just i mean you almost answered it probably before but if you were able to tell your 16 or 18 year old self some sort of bit of advice or wisdom who was starting out either in music or, or just live really. I mean, with all the decades of experience, what, what would you sort of just kind of want to whisper in their ear just in case they might want to listen? A couple of things. One of the main things I would whisper in their ear is save your money. Learn how to deal with money. You know, be smart with your money, invest your money, be smart with your money. Uh, and then I would also, and I tell my students this, my acting students this, find yourself a mentor. Find a mentor, you know, look around in your life and who can, who can mentor you? You know, I, I mentor young actors now. I have this one actor in particular that I mentor because, you know, I made a lot of mistakes as an actor too. You know, I never got famous as an actor, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the reasons because I didn't have a mentor and all that. But, you know, I, you, it's really important that you have somebody in your life who is not a family member for a start and who believes in you, really believes in you, and can guide you and can give you really sound advice about the steps you need to take, keep you on track. That is just crucial, you know, a mentor. So I think anyone who's ever been, anyone who's gotten successful has a mentor. There was somebody who they could call up late at night or they could, you know, call them up and say, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like doing something crazy or I'm, you know, I'm drinking too much, whatever, you know, I got this girlfriend, she's driving me crazy. And they just come over and say, 
break up with her. You want me to break up with her for you? I'll do it. I'll take care of it. Okay. Because you know what I mean? Because, you know, when you're young and impressionable and, you know, you, you, you know, you, you go to where things smell the sweetest, you know, you're always, you avoid the things that, that cause you anxiety and cause you stress. You avoid them and, and someone needs to take care of it. It's got to get taken care of. So you need someone to do that. So that's what I would say. Yes. Save your money and get a mentor. Yes. Tony Robbins. Get Tony Robbins on the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I went to one of his workshops once, a four-day or five-day workshop. You know, it was Did good. You? Yeah. yeah. I know his son. I know his son, Scott. Oh, right. Yeah. Actually, I was in an acting class with him for a long time, years ago. Yeah. Well, there were things he said, which I, I've, I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's good advice. Some of it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure he's got a lot of valuable things to say. You know. You know? And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. But look, thank you ever so much for this. I'm so appreciative of this. My and pleasure. I can always send you the link and you can always post it if you want. But um, it'll be fantastic. So thank yeah. you again. So it worked. Um, yeah, yeah great. Awesome. Thank good you, awesome. David. Look, take care there and have a lovely day. All right, you too. All the best. Cheers. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that is how you say goodbye. And that is also the end of the interview. A massive thank you to... Dick Wayne, Timothy Wayne Ball, um, from the Joe Boxers and also Buzz and the Flyers. Um, that's it. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these uh, archive interviews have been um, archived. <laughs> that's the word. Yes, anyway, it's a bit of a conversational cul-de-sac, but don't worry, I'm not going to edit that out. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. And that, as they say in the world of showbiz, is the end. Well, that's what Jim Morrison once said. So anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. That's it. Bye.